0: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: Who's up for a story?
2: The grandmother timed the guard circuits and observed the movements of other visitors. At the moment she felt she could act unnoticed, she applied a tool to the Allen bolts, working quickly and deftly. At home, she had ground the tip of a Phillips screwdriver to the exact dimensions of the bolt slots. Within 30 seconds, the dome was in the child's hands
1: and the gem was in her pocket. This is from a short story you've never heard of. In a book you've never heard of. By an author you've never heard of.
3: Yet. In this story, a woman and her granddaughter grab a piece of emerald from a museum display. They distract the bodyguard, very similar to what had happened at the University of Arizona, and they successfully make off with this treasure. And what I can't come to grips with is whether this is a confession or coincidence. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.
1: Welcome to Strangeville. So the theft happened just after Thanksgiving, Hold on, hold on. Cue the 80s heist music first. There we go. It's just before 9 a.m. on November 27th, 1985, the morning after Thanksgiving. And the University of Arizona Museum of Art is just about to open. Jason Whiteley, reporter with Dallas news station WFAA, can tell you all about it.
4: The art museum had not yet opened that morning. But the security guard noticed two people standing outside the front door, the glass doors there. And they knocked on the doors, a man and woman, and the security guard went to the door and said, yes, may I help you? The, the museum actually opens in a few minutes. They said, yeah, sure, no problem, but uh, can we just use the restroom while we're waiting? And the guard looks down at his, you know, watch and says, "You know, it opens in 10 minutes. Yeah, sure, come on in. No one else is in line. This is a college art museum, so there's not a, you know, a
1: rush here all the time." The couple steps inside, and the man heads upstairs to use the restroom. The woman stays downstairs with the security guard, distracting him for a few minutes as they wait for the man to come back down. And
4: then the man comes kind of rushing back downstairs, and they say, "Thanks a lot. We appreciate it." And they take off.
1: They left without looking at any of the art, which makes the guards start to wonder, hey, why did they come to the museum in the first place? The guard just happens to go up the stairs to the second level gallery there and takes a look
4: around and looks over in one frame and sees that a canvas has been cut out of a frame. The guard runs back downstairs, tries to chase these people who are fleeing and notices a car speeding off from the parking lot there at the University Art Museum. And the only description of this
1: car was a two-door kind of sports car that was rust-colored. That was it. That, and what the security guard was able to remember about the man and woman. Here's Taylor Lumsden, a photojournalist with WFAA, and Jason Whiteley's partner
3: in crime, reporting. The description of the suspects is pretty vague. It's a man and it's a woman who left in a two-door rust-colored sports car. There's a kind of crude sketch of this man and this woman, but it's not the best look at really who they are.
4: And they, they did an artist sketch of this that they kind of used. But back then in 1985 when this happened, this museum did not have any surveillance cameras, so there's no surveillance video of it.
1: And the two thieves hadn't just made off with any old painting. They made off with a valuable old painting. So this was a a painting that was probably, uh, I think,
4: three feet by four feet on a canvas, um, and it was called Woman Ochre.
3: Woman Ochre. It's painted by uh, Willem de Kooning, who is a an incredibly well-known abstract expressionist. And it was all abstract,
4: um, and it had beautiful colors, very pretty colors, and some of the the paint kind of lifted off the canvas a little bit. And it was in a series of paintings that
1: Willem de Kooning had painted uh, about women. At the time of the theft back in 1985, Willem de Kooning's Woman Ochre was worth about $400,000. To the museum
5: and to the university, it was priceless. Uh, I've always said that there were tears of sadness, um, despair on that day. This is University
1: of Arizona Police Chief Brian Seastone, an officer at the time of the de Kooning heist. That was
5: not my assignment at the time, but the chief asked me to take it. It uh, was the day after Thanksgiving when nothing ever happens, and surprise, it did about 9.15 in the morning.
4: And, and when you got there to the scene, because you, you went to the scene pretty quickly,
5: I, I presume, right? Did the chief send you out there? Uh, we had officers on the scene okay. very quickly. W-
4: when you got there, do you recollect what you saw when you walked up to the gallery?
5: Looked like a normal day at the gallery, you know, a, a holiday. And there on the wall is this empty frame that had been, been cut o- open and the uh, picture gone
4: were people emotional at the time there who were Oh absolutely
5: her? there there was shock dismay nothing like that had ever happened nobody ever thought it would here
4: the FBI has always investigated stolen art since these things usually uh, you know, travel across state lines. So the FBI showed up, the uh, University Police Department showed up, they all looked for clues. There just really weren't a lot of clues at the time. And that's what has really plagued this investigation from the
6: get-go.
5: So we have a very vague description of a rust-colored car, uh, this older, older woman and this younger man and the way they were dressed. That's all we had. Soon, the hunt for the two art thieves went cold. But
1: somewhere in the back of his mind, the police chief says he always believed woman ochre would resurface. I just had this feeling. 32 years after the de Kooning heist, in the summer of 2017, a man named Ron Roseman would receive an unexpected phone call.
6: It was in early August or early to mid August. When the phone rang, who was on the other end? Well, the FBI, uh, um, an agent from the FBI was at the other end. What did they say? They had, they assured me that uh, I wasn't in any trouble, <laughs> and that they um, were inquiring about a painting that was found in my aunt's house.
1: Ron Roseman's aunt had passed away late that spring. And as the executor of her estate, it was up to him to figure out what to do with all of her belongings. An entire lifetime of odds and ends, none of which he could have imagined the FBI would have any interest in.
6: We came in and looked for personal items to take, you know, bank records. And they had, you know, things in the attic and down below, you know tax returns and bank records for for many years.
1: As for the rest of their belongings, the ones that didn't have much sentimental value, Roseman decided to sell them off. That is, if he could even find a buyer. Ron Roseman is trying
4: to get rid of as much as he can, and he realizes his late aunt and his late uncle, they were kind of hoarders, but they had some cool stuff because they have traveled the world. So he gets rid of all of this stuff, and he looks no further than the uh, the next closest town that's a little bit bigger. it's called Silver City New Mexico and he calls a little resale shop down there, a little uh, artsy resale shop called Manzanita Ridge furniture and he says, "Hey, listen, I had some relatives that just died. I'm visiting from out of town, and I, I need to get rid of uh, a lot of the stuff, the furniture and you know, pots and pans and paintings and all kinds of stuff in their house. Would you mind coming up here about 45 minutes away and give me a quote on this?
1: Roseman figured, hey, you never know. Maybe some of his aunt and uncle's old knickknacks or furniture might actually be worth something. But the antique shop owners were a little less enthusiastic. The antique dealer
6: told me most of the items in the house were 50 years old and the furniture was broken and nailed back together over the years, and the move, maybe the move from New Jersey. How much was everything sold for? Uh, we sold it for 2000 The contents of the house? Well, it wasn't all the contents of the house. It was uh, a lot of the things, you know, it was the th- many of the things that were left
7: at the time. There was quite a bit of, of African art. This is David
1: Van Auker one of the owners of Manzanita Ridge Furniture and Antiques in Silver City, New Mexico, talking through some of the items the shop purchased from Ron Roseman.
7: Um, this was a piece from there. The piece below it, too, I guess, those little rattlers? Yeah. Or is that- mm-hmm. And this spear. Yeah, those. And, we got, of course, we got all the furniture and dishware and all of that out of the house as well.
1: Amid the assortment of spears, dishware, and old furniture, Van Auker says there was one piece in particular that stood out to him. It was a painting, tucked away, almost hidden, behind the door of the master bedroom. For whatever reason, it caught his eye, and he pointed it out to one of the other shop owners, Buck Burns. David came to me and said, I really like that painting. Do you think we could take it home? And I was like, yeah, I love it. The two shop owners brought the painting back to the store, Manzanita Ridge, along with the rest of the hall, where it caught the eye of one of the shop's newest regulars, James Cutera.
8: I had recently moved to Silver City, and uh, this is one of the places I like to look in. So I came in, and I was probably standing over there, and I saw the painting. And it looked pretty much exactly like ones that I'd seen in museums, like in San Francisco. You're an art buff. Yeah, I'm an art buff.
1: Gutera also took note of a signature in the bottom corner.
8: And it said de Kooning at the bottom.
1: De Kooning, as in Willem de Kooning. The same Willem de Kooning who painted the stolen woman ochre. But come on, what are the odds that this thing could be an actual de Kooning? Again, here's Buck Burns, one of the shop owners.
9: James actually kneeled down in front of the painting and was trying to scratch at it. And I grabbed him by his wrist and he said, do you know what you have here? And I said, no, we're going to research it. And uh, he kept trying to scratch at it. And I said, but if it's an original, please don't touch it. And that's how it started.
8: Yeah, I said, is this an original? This is an original de Kooning. And apparently they they weren't sure whether I meant original painting or it could have been an original study
7: of a de Kooning in the de Kooning style, you know.
1: David Van Auker overheard bits and pieces of this conversation from across the shop.
7: And he had said, "Um, is that a real de Kooning? And Buck said, well, it's a real painting. And uh, then James kind of leaned into it and Buck said, because he went to touch it, and Buck said, stop touching it, you know, you'll put your finger through it.
9: Never in my right mind would I have assumed it was a real de Kooning. I thought it was a study. A study being a, a duplicate. Yeah, of, I thought uh, somebody uh, just said, I'm going to paint like de Kooning and signed his name and everything. I knew it was an original painting. I did not anticipate it being a real de Kooning.
8: But then I uh, then, uh, forgot about it, I left. And then I came back the next
1: day, and I offered them
8: $200,000 for it.
1: You heard that right. This customer was willing to drop a couple hundred thousand dollars on this painting, just on the chance that it was the real deal, an actual de Kooning.
8: I was kind of hoping that they wouldn't know that it was a real de Kooning, and I could get it for maybe a couple thousand or something, you know.
1: To the shop owners, it seemed like an absurd offer,
7: until another customer asked about the painting, and then another. By the time the third person had come in and and they were touching it and looking at it and wanting to see it closer, um, we were afraid that somebody would, you know, bash it or flick paint off of it or something. So uh, that's when we decided that we would pick it up and stick it somewhere safe. And the only door that we had in the store that locked was the bathroom door. So we kind of slipped it in next to the toilet and (laughs) locked the door. And that's where it stayed for five or six hours.
1: Sorry, folks, that restroom is occupied by a painting that may or may not be worth millions of dollars. Meanwhile, they walked back to the computer, they got on the internet,
4: and they typed in de Kooning, an art piece. And lo and behold, one of the first stories that came up was a story back in 2015 that talked about this anniversary, 30-year anniversary of this art theft that had just come and gone, and no one knew what happened to this painting. And in that article... There was a picture of the painting, and the picture of that painting looked exactly like the one they had there hidden behind the men's
1: room toilet. The article is, of course, about Woman Ochre, the de Kooning stolen from the University of Arizona Museum of Art in 1985. A painting the article says now could be worth as much as $160 million. David Van Ochre, probably freaking out a little bit, decided to call the museum.
7: And so I'm trying to, I got my composure and I called them and I got a, a student receptionist and I said to her, um, I think I have a piece of art that was stolen from you guys. And she said, what piece? And I said, the de Kooning. And she said, hold please. <music>
4: A few seconds later, the phone rings downstairs into the curator's office, and the curator, Olivia Miller, answers the phone. And she's kind of suspicious about this as well, thinking, uh, you know, who who is this?
10: He's very calm, and he says, my name is David Van Ocker. This is going to sound crazy, but I think I have your stolen painting.
4: What did what, you think when he said that?
10: Um, I mean, obviously it was hard not to get excited, um, but at the same time, I, I wanted to be realistic um, because I knew I needed a lot of information before yeah. before I could do anything. Um, so what, so I just said, okay, tell me more. Yeah, what did you ask him? Uh, yeah, I said, tell me more. And he said uh, that he bought some items at an estate sale and he was going through them. And he did some research and he found an article from 2015 and he says it looks just like the painting I have.
4: And the guys say that it looks like on the canvas, the paint has little lines in it all up and down the canvas. And they say it looks like it's been rolled up. And Olivia Miller said at that moment, that's when she knew it was likely the real thing.
10: And I said, okay, that's that's just a detail that nobody I mean, nobody could just say that.
1: Olivia Miller, the curator, asked the shop owners to send over some photos. Close-ups of the signature, of those horizontal lines, and the back of the canvas.
10: And so they started sending all of those. And every time they sent a photo, I kept th- I kept thinking, this is it, this is it.
1: It was looking more and more like these guys in New Mexico actually had their hands on the stolen de Kooning. But there was only one way to know for sure. They had to get it back to the museum. So museum police work with the FBI and local authorities in New Mexico to put together a recovery plan. The painting, still in the men's bathroom of the antique shop, is soon secured by the local sheriff's office at a nearby private home. And Olivia Miller gets in a car to drive out there.
10: I will never forget that moment as long as I live. because again, it was one of those things we didn't know what to expect, and it turns out they were having a party. And um, it was a party that was already planned, not a party for us. <laughs> um, but it turned into this wonderful welcoming party. Um, we were greeted with hugs, and people are taking pictures and, and they're filming, and, and they just can't wait to see what our reaction is to the painting. Just
9: like We only owned it for two days, and I do have the photographs of how
10: it was on the wall. At long last.
1: Someone opens the door to a home office, and there it is, sitting inside.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Olivia <laughs> Miller walks straight to it, and she gets down on her knees in front of it. It's sitting on the floor, still in the gold frame that the altars had put it in. And she looks at it real close, and then she starts crying.
10: It was like seeing a ghost of something, in a way, because I've only known this painting from photographs. and. Seeing it in person, there were certain elements of it that were really familiar, and certain elements that you can only discover by looking at the original work of art. And I just kneeled down and and just looked yeah, it over.
0: And obviously, we're very very excited about the possibility <laughs> that this is this is the painting. Um, it will take a significant, <laughs> significant amount of time yeah, to to determine.
7: Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah.
7: yeah. We are. But we're kind of <laughs> giddy that.
0: Yeah. No. I no. Really we're, we are
10: we are giddy as well, yeah. but we're cautiously. Yeah.
7: Feasible. Totally. Totally get
10: it it. You, get it. you know, I was simultaneously trying to to relish all the details that that had been deprived <laughs> through the photographs. Um, but I also I was really concerned about the condition. So I was giving it an inspection to see you know what kind of paint loss there was, um, you know what was the condition of the canvas like. And, um, and then and then we just wanted to quickly get it wrapped and and get it safe. <laughs> wow. They wrap it up. They crate it up,
4: and then under armed guard, I'm talking about police officers with AR-15s and with uh, you know assault rifles, they take this thing back to the art museum at the University of Arizona. And when they get it back in there, when the, the first thing they do, they take it out of the gold frame that the altars had it in, and they lay it right on top of the original frame from 1985 to see if it matches.
1: It matched all the way around. Every bit of it, it matched. It was perfect. There was no doubt. This was Willem de Kooning's Woman Ochre.
0: Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey.
1: 32 years after it was stolen. Willem de Kooning's Woman Ochre was returned to the University of Arizona Museum of Art, and it's currently undergoing restoration. The Getty in Los Angeles has spent
4: a year and a half, two years, restoring this thing, and it's almost ready for display,
1: finally after all these years. But where had this $160 million painting been for the past three decades? Who stole it? And how had it ended up in this home in rural New Mexico? These questions were eating away at Jason Whiteley and Taylor Lumsden. So they decided to head out to the remote corner of New Mexico where the de Kooning was discovered. A tiny speck on the map called Cliff. Cliff, New Mexico
4: is one of those places that really couldn't be farther off the grid. If you go to Cliff, don't expect to get a cell phone signal because it's just not going to happen.
3: It's, it's a beautiful section of the desert. There's not much around. It's the kind of town where everybody knows your neighbors because there's not many other neighbors around you.
4: The town itself is probably 35, 40
3: different uh, homes there. And it's just breathtaking when you pull in, Um, but it's definitely a very small uh, town. There's
4: a little gas station, two pumps, I believe at the gas station, a little store and um, a small bull-riding-type ring that they have there. But this is a rural agricultural area, and, uh, you know, people make a, a modest
1: living there. It's, it's, it's not a, a wealthy area by any means. If there's one house that stands out in town, it's probably the house where an eccentric couple named Rita and Jerry Alter lived, the house where the de Kooning was found. Go figure, Right.
3: Their house was definitely a unique house amongst all the other houses. Um, Most houses in that area, um, they raise cattle or horses. There's a lot of country living out there. Um, The Altars house, if you were to set foot on it, in the middle of the desert has a pool, which is very unique for that community. It's got some lush gardens, it's got art. And it's very vibrant and colorful. And it, it, it's the property of someone who definitely appreciates or loves art. Keep
4: in mind, most of the houses around here are, are, are very small houses. There are many mobile homes out here. And then you have this place with a, a beautiful Italian tile roof uh, built out here on 20 acres. It stood out. And people knew that it stood out, but the altars—you know—they weren't hermits at all. They—they they knew all of their neighbors. This was a small town; they—they they got to know people. They invited people over, uh, only kept them—you know—outside on the patio with a pool or in the main room. They—they uh, they didn't let them roam the house by any means. But the neighbors we had talked to also said that they thought the altars were, were great people. They never could imagine that this would happen. And it's fascinating because looking back, they describe the altars as as very sophisticated people, very educated people. And that makes them wonder whether Jerry could
1: do something like this, whether he could mastermind something like this. Jason and Taylor had gone out to Cliff to investigate the painting. But they soon found themselves investigating the altars, talking to friends, neighbors, anyone they could find in town, trying to figure out who Jerry and Rita were.
11: I would say eclectic is probably a fitting, fitting word.
1: Lori Williams has been living in Cliff since the late 90s, so she got to know the altars over the years.
10: Friendly, yet, you know, private. I mean, in my 19 years of living here, uh, I never saw besides, say, a service vehicle go to their house meaning they didn't really do a lot of... I didn't see family go there or do much entertaining. We used to have a lot of parties, and we would invite them, and they would come, and they were always very happy to be invited and included, and they always had a great time.
4: What do you think about all this mess of of them and that painting? I
10: I don't know. I mean... how well do you ever really
11: know someone?
1: Another neighbor, Donna Impuro, is grappling with that same question. How well did she really know her neighbors?
11: Yeah, they were very friendly, and uh, struck up a friendship with them. And...
1: Were they outgoing?
4: Were they? Uh, tell me what they were like that you remember. What were they interested in?
11: Well, he uh, they, he was into his art. He, he did a lot of art, artwork and writing. Of course, he published several books and. And um, music, and they were very active.
4: What do you think about all this, all this mess about them with that painting up there?
11: Well, it was hard to believe at first. I had a hard time with that, but um, yeah, it's a, this is sure a mystery.
4: Did you, when you were up there, did you ever see the painting? Did she ever show it to you?
11: I did, I did. I actually did a painting, the, uh, just a thank you present. I, I did a painting for them, because I'm an artist too. And I, um, I, I painted them on horses, and they were in the Himalaya. So they, they put it in the bedroom, and I came in to take a, a photo of it. So And then when I turned to go out, I saw the painting.
4: and. Uh, did you say anything about it? Did she say anything?
11: I, well, I started med- talking about it, and um, I didn't talk too much about it. So,
8: What did that tell you? <laughs>
11: well, well, I didn't think anything of it at the time. Now, I you know, I kind of question it, but, yeah.
4: Do you think they might have had anything to do with
11: taking that painting? Um, of course, I guess it's a mystery. Um, yeah, I think it's possible.
1: Everyone in Cliff seems to have something to say about the altars. Another family who lives nearby, the Strange family no pun intended, say they saw the painting once, too, but didn't think anything of it, on account of it being so ugly. Really, really ugly. Their words, not mine. I looked at that, and I thought, that's the ugliest thing i ever laid eyes on, you know? <laughs> I never realized what it was. The Stranges aren't as convinced as some others in town that their friendly, albeit reserved, neighbors could be the masterminds behind a 1985 art heist.
8: It's really hard to think they were involved in it, you know, because they were such good people and friendly people. And, you know, they shared their life with, with you to an extent, you know, with their travels and things. But it's just hard to believe that they would be involved yeah, just,
2: in it. It's, I just can't swallow it.
8: <laughs> they were just, you know, like I say, it just not, doesn't seem like they would be that type of people that would ever do anything like
2: that. But it really caused quite a stir <laughs> around here.
1: <laughs> That's yeah. the gossip of the valley. It's not hard to imagine Jerry and Rita being the gossip of the valley while they were still around, too. See, the house wasn't the only thing that stood out about the altars. For starters, most people who live in Cliff were born there. But Jerry and Rita were transplants. They moved to Cliff in the 70s, and not from nearby Silver City or even Tucson or Albuquerque, but from New York City.
4: When you're looking for clues about how in the world this painting could have ended up at their house, you cannot overlook what the Alters did for a living. Jerry Alter was a music teacher up in the Northeast, uh, outside New York City, and he retired at age 48. He decided, uh, out of the blue, he's going to move his family, his wife, who did not work, And his young daughter and young son, he was going to move them to southwest New Mexico. Keep in mind, he's moving from the northeast, from the New York City area, to the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's not even a major city around them for hours. Tucson and El Paso are both three or four hours away in either direction. So Jerry and his family get out to Cliff, New Mexico. They build this gorgeous house. They dig this beautiful pool out there. And, you know, people start talking. Wow, look at these folks coming in. They must have sold their place for a lot of money up there in New York City because they sure are spending the cash down here. When they get to Cliff, though, Rita decides she needs to go to work. They need to at least put some food on the table because Jerry had just retired at age 48. So Rita does the same thing or husband did. Rita goes to work as a teacher. She's a speech teacher there at the local school, the public school in town. The questions have become really obvious over the years. How in the world was this family so comfortable financially if they were surviving just on one teacher's salary? They owned one of the nicest houses in town on 20 acres. They had the pool, which was a rare luxury in town. And then they would take weeks off at a time to travel around the world, To not places like Paris or London or Hawaii. They visited those places, but they were going to rare places, to the Amazon jungle, to India, to Tibet. They visited 140 countries that they would leave for weeks at a time on, all
1: of it on one teacher's salary. Jason Whiteley spoke about the altar's travels with their nephew, Ron Roseman. Who mentioned destinations like Norway, Papua New Guinea, Egypt, Israel, Iran, Afghanistan, the Himalayas, even Antarctica? He says they managed to hit every single continent.
6: They went everywhere. They met in the mid 50s, 55, 56, and their travels began there. They were both school teachers, and they would take every opportunity to go to pretty much the four corners of the earth. What did, they, what did they like about it, you know? Just the adventurous spirit? I think it was the adventure. Uh, my uncle's um, headstone, my, my aunt put adventure on it. How did they afford to travel so much on schoolteacher salaries? Well, I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, we always figured they were very frugal.
1: Jerry and Rita lived a life many of us dream about. Leaving for weeks at a time traveling to remote corners of the world. But how exactly they afforded that lifestyle, where the money came from, nobody seems to know. And then,
4: when they died, Ron Roseman said they still had more than a million dollars in their bank accounts after their deaths. So you got to ask the question, where did they get all this money? How did they make all this cash? Because, by all accounts... They were simply modest school teachers one at a time were they you know master art thieves did they travel to all these 140 countries along the way visiting some of the you know world's most renowned art museums did they go to these places to traffic stolen goods, to, to steal things, to buy things, to to uh, move things around. We don't know what they were doing. We haven't been able to track down any other stolen pieces that, that might be traced back to them. But clearly, people are wondering, how did they afford that lifestyle? Ron Roseman, the, the executor, who was the nephew of the alters, you know, didn't have an immediate answer early on how they could afford it on a schoolteacher's salary. But you have to ask the question, what were they doing? What was their other income source, their other income stream? Were they, you know, going places on behalf of someone else? Were they going places to steal something and then sell it back on a the stolen art market? Who knows?
1: The source of the altar's wealth, by all accounts, remains a mystery. But as Jason and Taylor continued digging into the altar's past... They began to wonder if there might be clues that could at least explain the $160 million painting found in their bedroom, if not the source of the rest of the money. During their investigation, they tracked down the altar's old vacation photos, carousels upon carousels of old slides.
3: It was a whole wall, as tall as I was, full of carousels, and each one of those carousels had a label on it about the country and the year and the date that they were taking these trips. Remember, the
1: woman ochre theft occurred in Arizona in November of 1985.
3: My first thought was, where were they in 1985? Where did they go? Were they in town? Were they in Arizona? Um, and secondly, could I connect them at all to this in any way? Um, Ron later got those pictures all scanned, and I spent days and days on my computer Going picture by picture through their vacations, reliving their lives, looking at each individual picture picture from uh, Africa, from Antarctica, to China, to um, anywhere around Europe. They were all over the place. They were in museums. You could tell that there was a love for art because he would stop and see different works of art. And that entire stack of slides, not
1: a single photograph, was dated November of 1985. They kept an itinerary
4: of the dates they were gone, where they were in the world, at what time. And in November of 1985, they were not on the road. They weren't traveling, which means they were, theoretically,
1: back in their home in Cliff, New Mexico. They lived there at the time. If the altars were home in Cliff, they were only about a a three-and-a-half-hour drive from the University of Arizona Museum of Art. And that's not the only coincidence Taylor and Jason found while looking through these slides.
3: But more importantly, what I was looking for was that two-door, rust-colored sports car. And after a couple days of looking, there in the mix, hidden in all the pictures, was a picture of Jerry standing outside his house in Cliff, New Mexico, with a two-door, rust-colored sports car. Very similar. Or perhaps the same as the vehicle seen driving
1: away from the museum on the morning of the theft. Huh.
4: So, two more clues added to the stack here. We know that the altars were physically in New Mexico. They were three and a half, four hours away from this art museum. We know they had a similar car, As the one that was seen fleeing, we know that the altars had a fascination with Willem de Kooning.
1: Oh, yeah. Did I forget to mention that? The altars were apparently big fans of Willem de Kooning. Real de Kooning heads. You know the type. Among other things found in the house
4: were a bunch of sketches and a bunch of other paintings that the altars had done trying to mimic some of de Kooning's own work. So they were clearly fans of his. There's something else, though, that that really kind of struck us as we started to dig into this, and that is the altars are from the New York City area, right outside New York City, and they would have been there back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, uh, up into the mid-70s or so, and that was about the same time that Willem de Kooning had gotten there, back in the 1950s and 60s, when he started painting, when he became uh, a big deal on the art scene as well, too. The question is... Was he one of their contemporaries? Did the Alters know de Kooning in New York? They weren't too far from him back in the 50s and
1: 60s. And if it's possible that the Alters knew Willem de Kooning, maybe they had some sort of personal connection to Woman Ochre. Some people have even speculated
4: that Rita Alter, that she might be the model for Woman Ochre. We don't know if Rita Alter knew Willem de Kooning. We don't know if Jerry Alter knew Willem de Kooning. Maybe Rita knew Willem before uh, she married Jerry. We're not sure, but there is a lot of speculation around there. It seems like that there, there, there might be a link that might have been erased by the passage of time on this that might be the hidden link in all this. Could Rita Alter be the model that was based on the painting Woman Ochre? We don't know. What we do know is that they all lived in the same area
1: around the same time, and there are certainly more questions that needed to be asked. But hold on. We might be getting ahead of ourselves a bit here. I mean, who's to say the alters even knew the thing was real? Couldn't they have picked it up at a garage sale or resale shop like Manzanita Ridge? Well, sure. But however they got a hold of it, there were some clear signs the couple knew exactly what they had
4: this painting was hidden behind their bedroom door. Who puts a painting behind their door? Now, mind you, they had paintings and photographs and frames and pictures all over the place, but this nice, large, abstract expressionist painting, hidden behind their door? A neighbor said that she would go over and, and you know, help care for Mrs. Alter when Mrs. Alter got older, and uh, she would, you know, visit her later in, in life. And, Mrs. Alter would never let this neighbor go back to the bedroom. Even though she would bring over chicken noodle soup and things like that, she was never allowed to go back to the bedroom.
1: And the painting wasn't just hidden in the bedroom. It was protected. Across the room, there
4: in their bedroom, was a large blackout curtain, and that's on the window where the sun sets. And then when we were in the house, before it was finally sold by the executor, the nephew, I I looked down at the baseboard, Uh, there uh, below where the painting once hung, and there was this thick seven, eight inch screw that was down there, and that blocked the door from actually opening into the painting. So the altars were clearly trying to protect this painting with the screw down there, putting it behind the bedroom door, putting a blackout curtain on that
1: one window. They knew what they had. And yet, they didn't seem at all interested in cashing in on the painting. What gives, Jerry and Rita? Why would you want to steal
4: what was at the time a $400,000 painting back in 1985, a lot of money, and not sell it? By all accounts, this was for their eyes only. They might have had an infatuation with this one specific
3: painting. If I could ask them one question, I would just want to know why. I would want to know, if you did this, why would you have done it? Because there's still so many questions. This is such a personal painting to them that I want to know what would motivate you so much to risk going to jail to cut a painting out of a museum and take it home with you and never return
9: it. You're looking in that room and you're like, wow, it's behind the door. You know, because if you did not know that painting was there and
1: you were a visitor, you would have never saw it. Buck Burns from Manzanita Ridge is one of the few people who got to see the painting in the altar's home, on the wall behind the bedroom door.
9: My personal thought, and it may be completely wrong, uh, but um, when I first saw where the painting was hanging in the house, it was for their private display. It wasn't for anybody else. It was hung behind that door, so then that door was open, nobody could see it. And that door was her bedroom door? Her door was the master bedroom door. Uh, the bed faced the painting. Um, so there's that. Uh, we also have uh, conversations from some of the, the healthcare providers that took care of Mrs. Alter, uh, laid off that, you know, they, they messaged me privately on Facebook and, and discussed the painting. And what did they say? Um, one lady specifically said that she had commented to Mrs. Alter about how ugly that painting was. And uh, she wrote in her message that Mrs. Alter replied to her, uh, had, had you, have you known how much the painting was worth? You wouldn't be saying that. Do you think they might have taken it for their own personal viewing for the last 32 years? Yes, I do. If if they didn't, they knew what they had, in my opinion. They knew what they had, and if they bought it elsewhere, I'm sorry, you don't put a piece of art like that up and hang it behind your bedroom door. Do you think they bought it elsewhere? No. I don't personally, but that's just me. It's my opinion.
1: The altar's nephew, Ron Roseman, seems about as surprised as anyone to learn that his aunt and uncle had a $160 million stolen painting in their bedroom. He says he froze up when he got that call from the FBI telling him what they'd found.
6: Basically looked like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> this was your favorite aunt and uncle here. It was my favorite aunt and uncle, and, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, scenarios running through my head and where could they have possibly, uh, you know, found this painting. Where do you think they found it? Boy, you know, with, you know, with all their travels, I mean, they're only a couple hundred miles away from Tucson, I imagine... You know, there's a lot of artist colonies in Arizona and New Mexico. You know, I figured, well, maybe they came across it there and, and liked it. Um, was that painting personal to them? You know they never mentioned it. I didn't see any um, record of it in uh, what they, you know, any mention of it in any, anywhere.
4: In a will in, or in anything like that. house
6: or, yeah, there in their safe deposit box. And it was never mentioned at all? Never, yeah, never mentioned at all. Do you think your aunt and uncle had anything to do with the theft of the painting? I, I can't imagine that they would. Knowing them the way I do, there's nothing that would ever indicate to me that they would have been involved with it.
4: Ron Roseman was a, a little, little shy, a little protective. He's a quiet guy, and and Ron was was kind of protective of his family uh, early on. And he said that uh, you know I I just can't imagine my uncle would do something like this. I, I, it just doesn't make any sense. That's not the aunt and uncle that I knew. And Ron had you know visited his aunt and uncle off and on for years. He he would always go see them every so often when he was out west, um, and and stop and visit. And he never knew them like this. He knew them as an eclectic aunt and uncle who traveled all over the place. But later in our interview, um, Ron did finally admit that it's plausible that his uncle could have done this, masterminded the entire thing, and successfully gotten away with it.
6: Well, it'd be just wild speculation, you know, even if I... Even the
4: FBI, uh, too, I think,
6: yeah. 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 So I think everything is possible, you know... I think, you know, they're looking at all
1: possibilities. They are, as far as we can tell. Despite the recovery of the de Kooning, University of Arizona Chief of Police Brian Seastone says the law enforcement investigation is still far from over.
5: No. It, it, we have asked the FBI, which we did 32 years ago, to really take the investigation um, because of their resources, vast connections, et cetera. So we have... Uh, Again, ask the FBI to step up, take that investigation. We're working jointly with them, but they're the lead agency at this point.
4: This seems like an open-and-shut case, is it not?
5: Nothing's ever open and shut. Uh, There's still a a lot of tracking to do. Where has this been for the last 32 years? And I've used the phrase a couple of times. If this painting could talk, she would have a magnificent story to tell us. Do you think Mr. and Mrs. Alter were the ones who took this painting
4: in 1985?
5: Don't know. I just do not know and I couldn't comment yet as it would be an ongoing investigation.
4: And, and I guess there, there are kind of um, two theories that are out there. Either either the altars took it or they may have picked it up somewhere along mm. their travels. As, I mean, those are the two theories that, that play out in my mind. Is there something else that might be out there you guys are considering? There
5: could be. But of course, we can't talk about it. You know, That's why I said there's a lot of missing pieces for 32 years and it's a, a puzzle. We've got a part of the puzzle now, a big part of it, now we've got to put in some other, other uh, parts. Uh, that's where talking to folks and, and trying to retrace 32 years is going to pay uh, uh, a lot of information for us. Could it have been in the same custody of the same couple all these years? Anything's always possible. We just don't know. Every time I would
4: ask the chief something, he, he was very cryptic about the entire thing. Mr. and Mrs. Alter had a red two-door car. Yes, what do you think about that as a potential
5: clue? Everything's always a clue. Does that lead you anywhere? It could, but we don't know yet.
4: And that just makes me wonder what else does the chief know? He was he responded to this back when it happened, November 27, 1985. He has followed this case since the get-go. It's something that I'm sure he would love to solve before he retires. So this is this is a case that still has clues out there that the police department and the FBI, for whatever reason, are just hesitant to say it's case closed on yet. You wanted to solve this case.
5: I did. Would you call it solved now? Partially. We've got a great recovery, and that's that's very important.
1: Important, but not a complete resolution. If only Jerry and Rita had left behind an explanation, a roadmap we could use to Put all the jagged pieces of this story together. Well, some believe Jerry did exactly that. Not to get too national treasure on you, but he left behind a book. Perhaps the biggest clue in all of this,
4: the one thing that really makes you say, aha, is a book that Jerry Alter wrote. And this is a book of fiction. It's a book of short stories. And he wrote it just a few years before he died, back in 2011 is when he wrote it.
2: Fiction, mostly. In the preface,
1: Jerry writes,
2: Fiction, in its purest form, remains unaccountable to the laws of nature which govern the real world. Yes, elephants can fly and grass can talk. In weighing my approach to these stories, however... I was concerned about the excessive implausibility diminishing their integrity and impact. Seeking to avoid this, I worked to maintain a connection with reality in varying degrees.
3: So what's interesting is Jerry writes this book. It's not a real well-known book. And and there's a story in there called The Eye of the Jaguar. And in this story, Jerry writes a. Uh, a woman and her granddaughter grab a piece of emerald from a museum display. They distract the bodyguard, very similar to what had happened at the University of Arizona, and they successfully make off with this treasure.
4: Now, if that doesn't match the details in this case, I don't know what does. The details are strikingly similar to the de Kooning theft and to what was found behind the altar's own bedroom door after they died.
3: And what I can't come to grips with is whether this is a confession or coincidence.
1: Confession or coincidence. What exactly are we supposed to make of this book? Jason Whiteley asked the altar's nephew, Ron Roseman, exactly that.
4: What do you make of that story he wrote?
6: Yeah, I read the book... uh... A while ago, I think he had just published it six, seven years ago, but he had let me see it a few years before that. And uh, somebody pointed out th- that there's a particular story that uh, you know that they this person said was very similar. It was about a heist of a gem. And uh, it uh, to this person, it seemed very close to the, you know, yeah, no, to what happened. To what happened,
4: yeah. You've seen the story he wrote, and you know what happened now with the, the theft happening at the University of Arizona. Was that, was he dropping some some clues
6: or some hints about what happened? Boy, I, only he, he would know. <laughs> and no one may know now. And no one, no one may know now.
1: At the end of Jerry's short story, the thieves escape, and the precious jewel, the eye of the jaguar, is left sitting in a private, empty room. The final line reads, and two pairs of eyes exclusively are there to see. Next time on Strangeville.
7: Mr. Ortega claims that he was severely beaten and uh, had had to deal with a severe injury, including a skull fracture, uh, uh, regarding an attack that he claims happened on or near this property. Can you offer any comment about that? No,
11: I cannot.
7: No comment about that. Strangeville
1: is a Vault Studios production. Our writer and producer is Reed Redman. Richard Humphreys at Coma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland mixes and edits the show. Executive producers are Brian Weiss and me, Will Johnson. Thanks to Jason Whiteley and Taylor Lumsden, who also produced a documentary on this story for WFAA called Discovering the de Kooning, which can be found on WFAA's YouTube page. Credit to Gabriel Farley for footage of the unveiling of woman ochre in Silver City. Until next time, keep your eyes peeled at your local antique shop, and thanks for listening.